Welcome to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at hstebbings on Snapchat and mojitovc.com for my new blog, essentially the intersection of Fred Wilson meets Freakonomics. And the show, as always, is brought to you by the one and only Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. Now, as you know, Sasta Annual 2017 is coming up and we would love to see you there. So much so that Mr. Jason Lemkin is giving you 20% off the ticket price and the best part, a free happy hour of mojitos with me. What more could you want? All you have to do is enter the promo code Dream Drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets and you'll get both the discount and the party. For those that buy the tickets, I want you to tweet me and Jason saying whether it was the drinks or the discount that did it for you. This should be interesting. However, it's time to welcome today's guest and joining me on the show today, we have Catherine Minshew. Now, Catherine is the founder and CEO at The Muse and she was named to Forbes' 30 Under 30 in media and Inc.'s 15 Women to Watch in tech. Before founding The Muse, Catherine worked on vaccines in Rwanda and Malawi with the Clinton Health Access Initiative and was previously at McKinsey. And Catherine has spoken at MIT and Harvard, appeared on the Today Show and CNN, and contributes on career and entrepreneurship to the Wall Street Journal and the Harvard Business Review. However, enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Catherine Minshew, founder at The Muse. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Catherine, so great to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Adam Quinton for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Now, let's kick off today with a two to three minute bio of you and how you came to found the sensation that is the muse. <laughs> great. Well, I, I guess the, the quick story on me. Um, so I grew up always thinking I wanted to be a secret agent or um, an international woman of mystery. I applied to work at Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, the State Department when I was younger. And I realized, luckily, through um, actually interning at a U.S. embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus, that the idealized version I had of a career in the Foreign Service wasn't quite the same thing as the reality. Um, that led me to take a job at McKinsey & Company to brush up on business fundamentals. And it was really there where I had the idea for the muse. And it, it came honestly from my own um, personal experience, which is that, you know, I had I had been one of those young people, many of us are, who think about, well, what do I want to be, you know, when I grow up? What do I want to do with my career? And I knew at McKinsey that I wasn't cut out to be a consultant, you know, till the end of my days. I, I was there for a couple of years in the New York office. So I started going on existing job platforms to figure out, well, what do I actually want to do? And I spent all of this time on, you know, you name it, the, the monster LinkedIn, Indeed, et cetera, of the world. And it was such a frustrating experience. First of all, most of those sites start with a big blank search box and they say, what job title do you want? But if you don't know what you're looking for, it's really hard to know what to put in the box. And then secondly, when you would, you know, when I would enter something, I thought, well, maybe I want to be a business strategy director. I would get 5,238 results. And the top one was assistant store manager, 7-Eleven, see Caucus, New Jersey. And I remember <laughs> thinking like, this is not what I'm looking for. And it started this, this conversation between myself and a few friends one of whom is my, my co-founder, Alex. And we said, well, what, what would it look like to help people navigate their career in a more human, a more intuitive way? And what might that look like for companies that are trying to hire not just bodies, commodities, but, but people, people that care about the work they're doing and that are excited to join this specific company and this specific role. Um, and so about five years ago, we, uh, we sat in my living room in Brooklyn. We sketched out the, the early structure um, and V1 of the Muse product. We launched it in September of 2011. And now we have, you know, well over 50 million people every year who come to us to navigate their career. Absolutely incredible story and journey there. But I do I do want to touch on one element of the business itself there. And being in the recruiting industry, it's traditionally a transactional model. So I'm intrigued, why did you introduce a SaaS business model to a traditionally unsaas sphere? 
Mm-hmm. I think that that was a, a really pivotal early decision that we made. Um, in fact, actually, the very first test that we did uh, with our business model was more transaction-based, but we quickly realized that, that that essentially a SaaS model was the way to go. And our thinking was most of the other companies in our space, they charge by CPA or by job post. But that only makes sense if you're trying to create a really short-term transactional relationship. We felt like the, the best individuals were thinking about their career over a much longer period of time. And the best companies aren't just thinking about who can I hire in 30 days. They're thinking about what's the talent that is in my pipeline on a much longer period of time. You know, who is it that I'm attracting to my company? And so for us, we said, all right, rather than pricing based on transaction, which is very common in the recruiting space, let's create an annual subscription. Uh, We also had some six-month subscriptions at the beginning. Now we've moved almost entirely to annual. And I would say it's been tremendously beneficial for us, although obviously any business model has its challenges. One challenge is it certainly takes us longer to sign someone up for a 12-month relationship with the Muse and all that, that entails versus, you know, they might sign up for a couple of, of postings or a $1,000 spend on a cost-per-click basis um, with another platform. We, though, are able to go much, much deeper and really become, honestly, partners um, with the companies that we work with. And, and these aren't, you know, we obviously work with a lot of small companies, a ton of startups, but we also work with Marriott, Goldman Sachs, Facebook, Zappos, uh, HBO, as well as, you know, a 10-person company that's thinking about their um, their model down the line. And it also let us, I think, be much more sophisticated in terms of the product we created and the analytics that we were able to give. Since again, we were, we were able to look at creating a relationship over time and building something um, around a company's employer brand, their long-term hiring pipeline that isn't just a transaction. It's really a big piece of their ongoing recruiting strategy. And I'm really intrigued. You said about the lengthening of the sales cycle there with the transition to the SaaS business model. So in terms of the sales process itself, for you. You didn't have sales experience going into utilizing the SaaS model. As you said, uh, being a secret agent and working in Nicosia and McKinsey, not not quite VP of sales. Uh, so, so when it came to enacting the sales process, how was that for you as a kind of fresh and, and inexperienced uh, young founder? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was salesperson number one. And you know, it's funny, I loved it, uh, which was a surprise to me because I was, I had a negative view of sales before uh, starting the Muse and doing it myself. So, you know, the, the, the way it happened was probably similar to um, a lot of listeners who've been through that early phase, which is that we uh, got ready to roll out our first product for employers, which was the Muse company profile, the photos and videos, the sort of employer branding and hiring piece of our product. And we were in a room and it's like, well, who's going to go sell it? And we joked that it was a nose game. It, it wasn't really. It was very obvious that it was going to be me because I'm I'm that person at the company in the early days. But, um, but I was salesperson number one. And so, you know, I sold the first 50 or so clients. Um, through a combination of cold email, reaching out to people who might know someone to put me in touch with, just a, a embarrassing amount of, uh, of hustle. And I think that is so critical because nobody can translate for you some of those early customer uh, hesitations, the opportunities. I think you've just got to be in those conversations. And if anything, I actually think having more of your early team or more of your founders, at least listening in on some of those early sales calls is so critical. There are things your customers won't tell you explicitly that you can glean from the questions they ask, the, the places they pause and hesitate, whether they say yes or no, that are 
absolutely instrumental to product development down the line. You know, so so I was selling these clients, and obviously one of the challenges of a founder salesperson is that you do bring a tremendous amount of passion, of conviction, and there are companies that will buy from you as a founder that will not buy from anyone else. So then we had to go through the next transition, which is you've got to make sure that other people besides a founder are capable of selling the product. Um, and that's really hard for a lot of companies because, you know, as as you all often cover on Saster, it's really difficult to know if you only have one person, does that person work? And uh, it's funny, before we actually built out a, a proper sales team, we had a, a jack of all trades hire at the Muse who was doing a little bit of everything. You know, she started out doing some marketing and partnerships. We had her handling some customer service, some ops, some onboarding. And um, and we tapped her into sales with me, you know, because she, she loved people. Um, and we thought, well, let's see how this goes. And it was interesting because I think this was another lesson for me about sales is that to get your early customers, you have to be willing to make people a little uncomfortable. Some people, even people that are incredible with others, aren't able or aren't uh, aren't as, as happy, as willing to go that extra mile and, and make somebody a bit uncomfortable, which is sometimes what's required to close them. So, you know, she turned out to be an incredible person on the account management side, but I realized that I needed to build out the sales org. And that was around uh, 2013. Can I ask, what does making someone uncomfortable look like? Is that pressing slightly harder on certain issues, pushing on pricing? What does that look like? Is that a physical squirming in the chair? Well, you know, I, I hope that I would never make anybody physically squirm in the chair. But yeah, I think to some extent, it's just that it's just that sometimes, you know, you have to say no or not this, but this. And so, for example, in terms of making people uncomfortable, um, it's everything from at the end of a call when someone says, oh, well, thanks so much for, for walking me through this product, you know, seems great. Um, asking that question and saying, great, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Are there any hesitations that would stop you from, from working with us? Even more explicitly, and, and now I'm embarrassed because, you know, it's funny, it's been a while since I've been a closer, um, honestly, probably since our sales order got more serious in 2014, but being able to really ask people directly whether they're interested or not, whether they think you're a good fit or not, to uncover, um, again, the, the hesitations that they have, they may not be telling you, because lots of people, especially when it's early on, especially when they know you're a small company, they just want to be nice. They want to tell you, oh, this product looks great, but you know, I'll think about it or we'll talk about it internally. You have to force or encourage your customers to tell you what's wrong. Otherwise you can't improve it. And there's always something wrong in the early days. There are always obstacles to gaining new customers. That's okay. That's part of the game. Similarly, you know, some companies will come back and say, well, this is interesting, but um, I'll sign up if you can make it uh, a one month trial at half the price of, you know, this thing that you quoted. And sometimes the answer is yes, because um, I think for us, a bit of flexibility in the early days was crucial to getting those early customers. We let people come in on pilots. We even let some companies come in for free. Uh, We obviously don't do that anymore, but it was very critical in building that early mass. But at the same time, you have to be comfortable telling a customer no sometimes and telling them, I'm sorry, the minimum we can sign you up for is six months. Here's why we do that. Here's why it's, it's good for you and good for us. But, you know, it does in many cases require making people a little bit uncomfortable. Now, I absolutely love that, making someone uncomfortable. It seems actually really rather hard for me knowing you because uh, you, you seem like the furthest person to make anyone uncomfortable. But you obviously <laughs> well, did it incredibly well because you've, you've built and scaled the sales team immensely. So I do want to talk about that then. Well, in- one Actually, one, one quick thing I'll add on that because you're right. It was not easy for me to make people uncomfortable. I would actually write down the closing question on a sticky note and stick it on the, the side of my laptop case because it was sometimes so challenging for me in the moment. And I actually learned this when I was fundraising because I would just leave my first couple fundraising 
servicing meetings without actually asking. So, or do you think you're interested in investing or something like that? And um, and people kept telling me like, you you have to ask, you have to make people a little bit uncomfortable with a, a more direct question in order to get feedback. Again, especially at the beginning um, when you're an early salesperson or an early fundraiser. And so I would literally write down the question, the sales question, the fundraising question, and I'd either have it in my hand or in my pocket before a meeting, or I'd stick it right there on the side of my laptop so that when it came time to ask the question, I would read it off the sticky note. And somehow that was easier than just saying it, even though obviously I knew what it was. So I just had to add that because that was a silly trick, but one that helps me quite a bit. No, that's absolutely fantastic. But very luckily, you don't actually have to read off a, off a bit of um, sticky notes now because uh, you have your established sales team. So let's talk about that then. And what you looked for first in your initial hires. And with those initial hires, did you go for the hiring two at the same time to encourage the competitive element? Yes. I think that that is such a key strategy, hiring at least two reps at the same time. It allows you to test different personalities. It allows you to test different selling styles to encourage competition. And it also means that you're not held hostage to one person and their their quirks, their whims. Again, you can get lucky and you can have someone fantastic. If they're too fantastic, it can be hard to tell what success might look like with someone who you know is, is, is great, but is less of a standout. And if they're not successful, it's really hard to answer the question, is this product not sellable or have I made a mistake with the person that I hired? So I think that that hiring more than one salesperson initially is really important. We actually made the decision to hire three reps instead of two. Um, and, And I think that that was a good decision, even though we made a lot of very basic mistakes in terms of who we hired um, and, and how we did it. I would say the early, the early growth of our sales team was a, a lot of trial and error and, and a lot of lessons learned for me. So, so let, let's talk about that because that, that can, is mind blowing to us in the SASTA world who only hired two at a time, a rigid two at a time. So let's talk about why you hired three and then also talk about, you said the trial and error. What were the trials and errors that you came across in that very early scaling sales process? Absolutely. So we actually initially set out to hire two, but we found three people that we thought brought very different strengths to the table. And we decided early on, um, I was seeing a fairly strong and consistent amount of traction uh, in terms of sales, early sales. We had um, the desire to sell into a couple of different geographies. And I felt like, okay, you know what, let's give this, this third person was a bit of a wild card, by the way. Um, that the other two were a bit more obvious and straightforward. But this third person was really, really smart. And we said, look, let's go ahead and, and take the two that we think are going to be more solid, take a chance on the wild card and see what happens. And again, I think part of what we were looking to do was gather data about what type of person was likely to be successful, what methodology, what price point. And you know, it was, it was a really interesting experiment. I will say that the wild card ended up being our best rep, especially right off the bat. Uh, she was much less experienced in sales, but just very, very smart, very thoughtful, uh, was able to negotiate much larger deals, which was incredibly useful. One of the challenges, and, and I go back, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of trial and error. The hard thing as well in startups is that there are some things you would look back on and say, you know, I'd change that if I could, but I don't 
know that it'd be possible for us to have gotten where we are without making that mistake. So I think that that some of ours, um, some of our lessons learned were in that category. So one of the more classic mistakes that we made is when we were hiring our first three reps, we overweighted their enthusiasm and passion for the muse, and we did not adequately vet their love of sales. And this is a huge problem because sales is a funny beast. You know, people that love sales love sales. You know, and 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 yet there are a lot of people looking to work in startups. There are a lot of people who think that sales might be interesting, uh, but that is a bet that I think is not wise for a young company to make. And so, for example, we hired one person who had come out of a fundraising background, a tremendous amount of calling and some closing, but not a classic sales. Uh, the other person had done the um, calling, but not closing. So appointment setting, a lot of cold calls on the phone. Um, but again, with, with, with that rep, we ran into some of the same challenges around being able to make people uncomfortable and make people close. As our sales org has gotten bigger and, and we're now you know past 40 folks working in sales at the Muse, we've been able to take more chances on reps, but early on, and I've seen this advice since, I, I wish I'd read it on faster earlier, um, but you know, it was one of our big mistakes was not hiring early reps that had very classic SaaS sales experience and that were passionate about sales. So that was that was a big challenge. I was managing them myself, which was really challenging for a lot of reasons. One is that I was raising um, around our second seed round at the same time, which meant my focus was very split. Secondly, something I learned about myself is I am a much better manager of more experienced hires. And that was a really tough lesson to learn because I wanted to be a good manager to these three fairly junior salespeople. And um, I didn't live up, live up to the standard that I set for myself. And I think it's it's been fascinating because um, I beat myself up about that a lot and really wanted to work hard on, you know, how can I make sure to be a better mentor to people that are just a year or two out of college? And now I've realized, um, you know, the Muse functions much better when I have direct reports that are substantially more experienced uh, and executive at what they do. And I spend a lot of time with people at all different levels, but it was challenging for me to be the direct boss, the direct manager, um, because I didn't have the time or the specific skill set around coaching someone who was fairly new to the workforce. Um, And so that was just really, really challenging for me personally. I will say when we hired our first head of sales, uh, I changed my life. I mean, it really changed my life. <laughs> I, I do I do want to dive into that element though, before we go into a quick fire. And, and that is, you said about obviously hiring the experienced exec to, to act as the coach and mentor and you oversee them. Often, a lot of founders have a problem with just hiring that at core exec. So how did you look to do that? And what were your breakthroughs then in building that team of experienced sales or you know, it could be other facets of the organization, but around you, what were your breakthroughs? Yeah. The, the first hire that was such a huge breakthrough in that way for me was our now VP of sales, uh, Doug Freeman. He joined April Fool's Day of 2014. And, uh, and we were looking for him. We were looking for that role for at least six months beforehand. And that was really challenging. We had a job description posted on the Muse. We were going out and, and shaking the network. We actually had someone that we were interested in uh, earlier on in the process who ended up deciding to join a more established company. That is always really painful. I think we were about 12 people at the time, so it's certainly understandable, um, but but not an easy thing to happen. And there were a few things that really helped us find Doug. One was that I actually uh, ripped out and rewrote everything we were using externally to recruit for this role. We completely redid the job description. That sounds so silly, but I cannot tell you how many people get turned off by a lackluster or mediocre job description. We rewrote it to really emphasize, here's why you're going to want to work with us. This is why this is going to be the opportunity of a career, of a lifetime for someone who wants to build a world-class 
sales organization hand in hand with a really tight team that's poised for growth. And yes, here's what we are looking for from you. But but in some ways, much more importantly, here's why you're going to choose us. Here's why you're going to want to be here. Um, that focus on really putting the opportunity front and center, articulating it and making it external was so critical. When I started sharing that new job description, um, I went back to some people I had previously talked to. One of those actually introduced me to Doug. And then um, we were just very, very thoughtful about the recruiting process. I wanted to make sure that I didn't make some of the same mistakes I'd made in our early sales hiring. So we dug really deep into sales structure, methodology. Uh, Doug told me a story when, when I was interviewing him about being thrown into kind of a chaotic situation at Living Social and having to bring structure. And it, it, it made me comfortable that he could bring both the experience, but also the scrappiness. Because the flip side of hiring executives is the last thing that you want to do is to hire someone who comes in and says, all right, I'm going to need 10 direct reports at this high salary. I need all of these tools. I need this and that. So we vetted very, very thoroughly for the ability to just roll in and, and kind of, you know, get your hands dirty. It's like, it's almost like a, it's a, a tough balance. Coach. It's a tough balance, isn't it? Between kind of the experienced exec who's also inherently scrappy. Exactly. And it's really hard. It's really hard to vet for. I think part of it is, is, you know, we listed out a couple of questions we wanted to ask people ahead of time. We asked, you know, what would your ideal team look like three months, six months, and 12 months after you start? That can give some sense of where there are expectations that might be misaligned. Obviously, you know, salary negotiations, like how people handle that, um, I think tells you a lot about the way they're going to view resources going forward. You know, do they, do they come at it from the perspective of we're both on the same side trying to get this done? Um, and then at the end of the day, I just, I think that you've got to trust your instincts about people. We brought Doug on in um, the first day of the second quarter, 2014. And, you know, we went from 150K a quarter to well over 2 million in eight quarters. So I'd call that a, a, a pretty um, successful. Pretty astonishing high. Absolutely. I, I do want to dive into the quick fire with you though now. And we call it the 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per one. Uh, and, and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? All right, I'm ready. Okay, you ready? So let's yep. start with your incredibly busy 130 employees. What are your productivity tips and tricks? Okay, two things. Um, one, I am addicted to Boomerang. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you send emails out of your inbox and schedule them to come back at a certain time. It lets me feel like I'm managing my inbox and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, I work best when it's calm and quiet. So I've blocked my calendar so that whenever possible, I have at least an hour at the beginning of the day and several hours at the end of the day where I'm at home, not in the office, uh, focusing. And that's my kind of go-to time for cranking through the big things so that in the day I can focus on meetings, calls, conversations, uh, small stuff, and know that I'll have that focus time. And then what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started the Muse all those years ago from the Brooklyn apartment? <laughs> Lots of things, but the the phrase that jumps to mind is don't believe the hype. It can be so easy to feel like everywhere you turn, somebody is you know raising $10 million and crushing it and doing this and doing that. But at the end of the day, most businesses are built incrementally, step-by-step, through very hard work uh, and and forward progress, small steps at a time. And on top of that, I think it can be very hard to keep that perspective in the midst of all the advice that's out there. However, sometimes people giving the loudest advice haven't actually built a real company themselves. So again, I think you need to listen to feedback, listen to advice, be voracious about learning from others. But at the end of the day, trust your instincts. And then you run a recruiting platform, one of the best in the world. Uh, The biggest mistake that current SaaS companies are enacting with their recruiting process. 
Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, a lot of, and I won't name specific names, I don't want to shame anybody, but uh, there are a number of large SaaS companies that are still treating recruiting as uh, as a commodity part of the business. That, you know, one salesperson is the same as the next and that you can just kind of stick a sign up at the front door, help wanted, and people will come right in. I do not believe that is true in today's uh, workforce anymore. The best people are looking to be, they're looking to be spoken to. They want to know what will my life be like if I choose your company over another company? And so I think the best companies are uh, recruiting people over a long period of time, using content to tell a story about their businesses. Actually, Dropbox is doing some really interesting um, work, obviously, that's a, a bit different, but they've got a, their enterprise team has really been effective at telling a specific story about why that team, why now, and what sort of people are going to succeed there. Um, and I think that that's where the future is heading. Absolutely. No, I always think human resources is a terrible two words for, for essentially team <laughs> um exactly uh, but but i but moving out of the quick fire and and just touching on one of my favorite topics um you can tell i need to get out more is customer success and renewals um so how do you approach the much discussed area of customer success and, and when did you first hire your first cs rep yeah so so our first cs rep was actually the woman i mentioned earlier who was a jack of all trades um she had started in marketing and partnerships but just had an incredible ability to connect with people, uh, to understand what was really going on, to calm them down if they were upset or get them excited if they were feeling a little, little bit meh. And um, and we ended up building our early uh, customer success team around her. We then brought in uh, a second woman. For a long time, it was just the two of them. Um, for us, it was very important because we're such a, a human-centric business to have incredibly strong customer service, um, both for our companies, the you know, six 600 plus companies that have annual subscriptions uh, to recruit on the Muse, but also to our users. And we actually separated those two teams because um, the needs are very different and the response time expectations are very different. So I'm focusing on the the companies since I think that's the most relevant to a faster audience. Uh, you know, we have worked very hard at understanding um, which of our customers are are intensely successful on the Muse and which ones are not having as good of experience. And how do we predict that ahead of time and then handle it when it does happen? You know, we have um, essentially on a on a on a dollar basis per cohort, um, we renew more than uh, than we bring in in every single cohort, which is obviously fantastic. But that doesn't mean that we can ignore those companies that the product isn't working as well for. Um, and so for us, it's been both dividing companies or customers, I suppose, into the um, happy and need more, the middle, and then the frustrated, and then essentially laying out different strategies. And we've grown our CS team uh, by quite a bit in the last. 12 months. So now we're looking at whether we actually segment it by type of company as well, since as anyone knows, the CS needs of a 15-person startup or even a 250-person um, you know, small business are very different from um, a much larger company. So we now have a specific CS department just for our enterprise clients, and we're looking at actually segmenting that even further. And then the final question before, before we finish today, and that is an interesting one for me personally, is how much of a role do CS reps play? in actively upselling is that something that they get involved with to you or do, the, do you retain the very kind of personal and trusted relationship 
Great question. Um, right now, our CS reps are extremely active in the upsell process. In many cases, they're leading it. Uh, they're the ones who have their pulse on what our customers are doing, what their needs are. And um, and I believe that you can take that, you know, that relationship that's been invested in and really leverage that through the upsell. Now, with our largest customers, um, the original account executive stays with that customer for the life of the deal. So that those are held a bit differently. But we found that um, it, it's actually been most effective for the growth of our business to have our CS reps lead the upsell process um, and really focus on on building that relationship over time, um, which, you know, especially now that we've got clients that have been with us since 2012, you can really you can really start to see that. Absolutely. But it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today, Catherine, and incredible to hear the scaling process, both of the sales team and the CS team. Uh, and I can't wait to see the future that lies ahead for the Muse. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, It's been a lot of fun. As we said, they're so fantastic to have Catherine on the show today. And I have to say a huge thanks to Sasha Orloff at LendUp for the introduction to Catherine. I so appreciate that. And if you would like to come to SAS to Annual 2017, we would love to see you there. All you have to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY. And not only do you get the 20% discount, which is incredible in itself, but you get the majestic free happy hour of mojitos with me. It would be so great to see you there. As we said, all you have to do, drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets. As always, we so appreciate all the support. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can always email me, harry at the20minutevc.com, all in letters. And I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.